0: Hey, y'all, it's Brian Rosefield. Just reminding you if you're enjoying this content, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend about the Greatest Games Podcast. We would really appreciate it. Hello, and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast, brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co host, Krista Blasio. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be
1: here as always on the Greatest Games podcast. A chance for us to catch up with coaches from around the country and have them tell us about their greatest game. As always, it can be their time as a head coach, a middle school coach, a CYO coach, an Ivy League coach, just whatever game they consider to be their
0: greatest game. You are just the master of the tease, Chris de Blasio. i tell you what, I, it's just unbelievable the what you bring to this podcast. And you're right. <laughs> we have an Ivy League coach with us. We're going to the Ivy League for the first time. The Director of Operations at Princeton Men's Basketball, Chris Mongelia. Welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast.
2: Brian, Chris, that was uh, quite the intro there. I really appreciate that. Just want to let everyone know. I just work in an Ivy League school. I didn't graduate from there, so yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm not even allowed on campus at Ivy League schools. That's how dumb I am. They're like, I'm not even allowed to drive through. <laughs> now, Brian, have you ever been on the campus of of any Ivy institution, but Princeton especially?
0: No, I, I never have. I'm, I'm trying to. No, I, I really never have. I, I'm 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 super curious. I, I'd love, love to know more about it, but I think I'm I'm like you. I'm I'm not sure they would let me on campus. I, I, <laughs> I don't know how I got in the, into the University of South Carolina, but I'm sure glad they let me in because I had no <laughs> other options. But I sure as heck wasn't getting into an Ivy League school, that's for sure.
1: Uh, uh, most of the Ivy League schools are very beautiful, and Princeton is at the top of that list when it comes to picturesque. Uh, obviously, the education is second to none, but the beautiful campus that you guys get to show kids around, I'm sure, is just amazing when you, when you get to show recruits around.
2: Oh, it's great, Chris. I mean, working there, I, I still have this, I'm going into my fifth year. And there's a lot of days where I'll get out of my car in the parking lot and walk into the office and be like, man, I still I work here like this is <laughs> it's unbelievable. So they haven't figured me
1: out yet. All right. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: Right. Well, coach, uh, we're, we're
1: going to talk a little bit. We'll talk about uh, some some projects you're working on later in the podcast, but uh, you do have an interesting journey. Uh, so why don't you take us through that journey in basketball and how you got to where you are today?
2: Sure. Um like a lot of people, started uh, kind of from the bottom a little bit and just looking for a job. Volunteered at a local high school uh, where I grew up, uh, Riverdale High School. I know you had Coach Van Saders on here earlier in your podcast. Uh, he was someone I linked up with early in my career. Um, Brian Long, his former boss and former head coach when he played. Um, he's from Dumont, which is where I'm from, um, and I grew up with his son Travis playing basketball when we were younger. So. I was looking for an opportunity. Coach Long let me volunteer. Uh, did that for one year. Then after that, became the middle school head coach at Riverdale. Uh, did that for a year as well. Promoted up to freshman. Did that for two years. Uh, really enjoyed my time at Riverdale. Learned a lot. Got to you know jump right in and experiment a lot and kind of figure out what coaching was. And, you know, everyone thinks they know how to coach until you get into it. And, and you know, you kind of learn some things like, oh, that's not as easy as I thought it looked. Um, and then really got in, I really fell in love with coaching while at Riverdale and just was super curious about what the next level would be and started to have conversations while at Riverdale with some coaches at the, the next level um, that really helped me progress in my career. Uh, Brett McConnell, who's the associate head coach at Princeton with me right now, was someone that I had no relationship with at all. Um, We brought our Riverdale team to Princeton team camp when we were when I was working there. And through that relationship, Brett and I just connected and he kind of guided me, giving me cold, hard facts about this is what you have to do. And this is who you have to talk to and the things that you might have to do that you don't want to do. And I remember sitting on that conversation. Uh, sitting on that phone call and being like, there's no way I'm doing this. There's no way I'm doing that. And truth be told, I did all the things he told me to do. Um, through those connections, I started coaching AAU. Um, and that really kind of got me in AAU tournaments around Division three coaches. Wound up getting an offer to work at Kane University after four years at Riverdale uh, for Rob Krasinski and Tom Wagenblast who was the associate head coach there. Um, I think I learned how to coach at Riverdale, and I think I learned how to become a coach at Kane. Those two I would credit with teaching me how to be a college coach and what it took and the difference between coaching in high school and coaching in college. And that was like a, a one-on-one course for me to go there and learn from those two. And, man, I could have learned so much more, but an opportunity popped up after a year there to go work at St. Peter's in Jersey City at the Division One level in the MAC. Um, just really good timing and, and knew the right people. And again, that, that job with coach Dunn, who's now at Marist and then Matt Henry were two people there that taught me a lot about being a coach at the division one level and what that meant and kind of how things were different than Kane and, and so, so on and so forth. And just that whole time, I continued to cultivate that relationship with Brett, um, at Princeton and we, you know, He kept offering me opportunities and I just kept showing up. He's like, Hey, you want to come to practice? Yep, I'll be there. You want to come to a game? Sure thing. I'll be there and I'll be there early. So you see my face and know that, you know, I'm punctual. I'm here. All the right things that you hear online, those cliches, like they're not cliches. If you follow through on them, um, it builds trust with people. And that's just what I did. And luckily after a year at St. Peter's, it was, you know, time for me to check out another opportunity at Princeton and, And that's kind of the story of how I got here. Now I'm going into year five and it's been, you know, like I said, it's just been a dream for me to think like, I can't believe I work here. Uh, It's been the the best privilege of mine to, to be able to be a Princeton tiger and just can't wait to continue this journey.
0: So Chris, you are right on target with where I was going to go with my first question. Anyway, talking about opportunity and fans stop what you're doing right now. Pause the podcast, head on over to Twitter, follow at pursuit underscore pod. So the pursuit podcast, Chris's podcast, absolutely fantastic. I listened to the episode five on opportunity uh, this morning and it absolutely blew me away as we were getting ready for this, this podcast. So we were super excited uh, to be able to talk to you, but I've got so many questions around opportunity. I'm not going to ask you to give those all the answers that you gave in your, <laughs> in your podcast episode. I want encourage fans to go over there and listen to it themselves and rate review and subscribe to your podcast. Like I said, it's unbelievable, but I want to know where that came from for you to be able to hear those opportunities and say, yep, I'm going to do that one. Here another option. Yep. I'm going to do that one. I'm going to do that one. I'm going to do that one. Where did that come from for you?
2: Yeah. First of all, thanks for the plug. Didn't know I was going to get that benefit of coming <laughs> on your podcast, but uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun to do that. And I, I don't know. I think I just had really good role models when I was younger. Um, my parents and my sister and my aunt were really, you know, no nonsense kind of people. They, they did the right thing. They, modeled the right behavior. They, they said the right things and followed up and, and held themselves accountable to that. So I think I kind of had no choice. That's just how I was brought up. Um, but then I always, I know this is going to sound a little weird, but I feel like I had the best sports role models too. I grew up a Yankee fan and Derek Jeter was like, you know, the captain of all captains. Uh, I was a Kobe Bryant fan growing up. And I think obviously his work ethic was something that you always kind of hang on to a little bit. Uh, also obviously a Michael Jordan fan. So those kind of work ethics go hand in hand. And then believe it or not, my dad's a a diehard Colts fan. So I grew up a Peyton Manning guy too. So I think I always saw like, well, Peyton Manning works really hard and all those guys work really hard and it's all about, you know, opportunity. And I just think that that kind of had an influence on me for, for something that I never really thought of at that time until I got into this business. Um, but, yeah, I think – I don't know if I could pinpoint it, but I think that all those people kind of had a little bit to do with it.
1: Chris, you talk about – we talk about opportunity, and, and Brian was talking about it. I don't know if – I'm going to try to tell the story quickly. Rick Barnes, who's now the head coach at the University of Tennessee, he was head coach of Texas for a long time. Brian, I don't yeah. know if you know the story. It was in um, the John Feinstein book. Um, uh, that last one- amateurs? No, the one he did where he was with the ACC in like 1992, 93, somewhere in there. He was with all the ACC coaches. Uh I can't think of the name of the book. But Rick Barnes had an opportunity to interview for a college coaching job at like 23 years old. He had one suit. He went down to Davidson college to meet with the head coach and he got there at the gym and the secretary said, Oh, he's not here right now. He should be in later. And apparently the head coach totally forgot that Barnes was coming to interview with him. And Rick Barnes sat in the hot gym all day for like 10 hours in the one studio, drenched to the bone, waiting for the coach to show up. And finally the coach came in in the evening to like get something from his office. And he was like, who are you? And he's like, I'm Rick Barnes. I'm here to interview with you. And the coach was like, oh, my God, I totally forgot. But why are you still here? <laughs> and he was like, because I want to interview with you. The head coach, Brian, was Eddie Biedenbach.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Brett Carey,
1: yeah. our buddies who played and, and coached for Eddie at UNC Asheville. And oh, Eddie so, was right. at uh, uh, Davidson at the time. But so I want to ask you, you talk about Brett giving you these opportunities or setting you up and stuff. What's the craziest one you could tell us about? That maybe you drove four hours at three in the morning to get to or something like that.
2: Oh, man. So Brett had never seen me coach before. He had only had conversations with me. Um, And then out of nowhere, he texted me and was like, hey, do you want to coach AAU? And I was like, well, you told me I should coach AAU. So, yes, I guess I want to coach AAU. (laughs) Um, And he said, I got a guy. He runs a program. They need a 16U coach. It's in Middlesex, New Jersey, which is like an hour and a half from where I lived at the time in Dumont. He's like, you'll practice twice a week, you'll coach in tournaments, like they have a, you know, a real AAU program. It's not like a a fake one that's not playing in college, uh, in front of college coaches. So I was like, yeah, okay, I'm in. And I just like blindly accepted it. Didn't really know what it was about, but I was like teaching at Riverdale at the time. So I was waking up at like 6 a.m., getting to Riverdale by 7 to teach a full day getting done with school at like 3, getting in my car, driving an hour and a half, hour 45 minutes to practice, practice from 5 to 7. Then the 17 U coach would practice from 7 to 9. And so I was like, how am I not going to stay and take notes on that? Uh, that would wrap up around like 9, get back in my car at 9.30, drive home, get back at 11, and then just kind of do it all over again. So I think those that was a time where I really learned how to like grind. You know, at Riverdale, I was always working hard. And I think I was always trying to do the extra stuff, you know, skill sessions in the morning, weight sessions with the kids. Like I was always that guy, but this was like, okay, you thought you worked hard. Do you really want it? And that was kind of where I put my foot in the water and was like, yes, I really want it because I'm doing that and putting those miles on my car and, and you know, that time in and just (laughs) really getting no sleep too. That's where that kind of started for sure.
0: We used to talk about it at the University of South Carolina, we can go run around, but like, we got to answer the bell like every morning, get up, answer the bell. We're going to be, we're going to be the ones packing the bus, packing the plane, checking classes in the morning. but are going to study all late at night after workouts and everything like that. We're getting in the weight room of the guys in the morning. And you know, such a fascinating industry as i talk to, I love talking to coaches of all levels, but especially to get back here to talking to a college coach now, just a reminder of, of that grind and really of the, of the payoff too. Like it's not, you know, none of us really at any, at any level really, are, unless we get to high division one, head coaches are getting paid a whole lot. And the payoff is to, to be around those kids, be around the program. And, um, I don't know if there's a question there, Chris or, or Chris, or Chris, but I just, uh, I'm just kind of struck by everything that you just went through there. And, um, I, I am curious now we, we ask this question a lot, like what makes a good athletic director? What makes a good head coach? What makes a good assistant coach? So I'm going to put you on the spot here, Chris, what makes a good director of basketball basketball operations?
2: Wow. Um, that is a loaded question. And I don't know if we have enough time (laughs) to answer that fully. Um, I think, I think empathy and I think organization are the two biggest ones. I think I've learned that over my time. Um, my first year I would have answered that totally different. And I would have said like energy and passion and, ruggedness, I would have said, but I've learned that there's a lot of people that you need help from when you're the director of ops. And I think understanding their story of whatever their life is, and understanding that your their world does not revolve around you, even though you need them to do something for you. I think having the empathy to know that um, they're human beings, they're not just like a person that has to do something or check something off your list. So I think that's really been big for me in my career is just trying to cultivate, cultivate that relationship better than I did in year one. I think I was probably like a tornado at at Princeton in my first year of like, I am at the Ivy League. I need to be this. I need to be that, like razor sharp and everything. And I think I've evolved. Hopefully, I would like to think in my own head I've evolved um, to be a, a better uh, coworker. And then obviously organization is just there's just. There's so much stuff that you have to do. There's so many departments like I was talking about. Um, You'll just, you'll forget something if you, if you're not organized. So I think those are probably two of the biggest things to make a good director of ops.
1: We always talk about our buddy that we worked with in South Carolina for a long time, Bill old, who was the most organized director of operations. I mean, he was just someone that coach Odom could count on to just like, just coach Odom didn't have to worry about anything in that respect with anything that bill was in charge of taking care of, it was going to be taken care of. It was going to be taken care of on time. Like you said, organized, you got to reach out to all these different departments on campus, off campus, setting up all these things. And yeah, just so that your head coach doesn't have to worry about anything.
2: That's the biggest thing for sure. I remember when I was getting interviewed with Mitch, who's our head coach. And he was just saying like, I need to worry about basketball and recruiting. Um, And you know, he's the, he's the president. And you almost have to protect the president. I learned that at, at Kane university, Tom Wagenblast taught me that like protect the president. So any shots that are coming at the president, like you got to try to deflect them a little bit and take them on yourself. Um, So I think, I hope that Mitch feels that way. I know he's told me a couple of times, like, you know, to do something and I'd be like, coach, that's done already. And he'd be like, my man. And just, (laughs) that's, that's what I like, you know, so if he can coach and be more attentive on our players and anything that he needs to pay attention to, then, then I'm, I think I'm doing a good job. Yeah. Yeah. And I, Chris,
0: I love that, that empathy answer too. I mean, talking about Billy old, I mean, he was in the, literally in the center of the office all of our assistants and head coaches kind of around, or head coach were around. But when when things were on fire, when kids and players would come in, not sure what to do, they could get the Bill first. And he was just kind of that buffer. And then we could get him to, you know, Bill could get him to an assistant if, if need be. But uh, just that I think it's such a huge and, and rewarding role. As I was mentioning earlier, to be a, a director of operations, I think it's such a neat role. But Well, you know, we are here to talk about the greatest games. And so we, at this point in the show, would love to hear about the greatest game that you've ever been a part of. Take us into the
2: arena. Let's really feel your greatest game. I really love this premise, first of all. Um, I think I have an an honorable mention list, if that's all right. Totally Uh, cool. Been lucky to be a part of a lot of great games. First one I have to mention, a previous guest of yours was on. Uh, coach G and Freddie I'm a little upset he didn't list our our game against each other as his greatest game Um, he probably didn't list it because he blew a five-point lead with 30 seconds left to go in a championship game of a Christmas tournament so had to throw that dig out there to my guy uh, coach G and Freddie but at Princeton we've had a lot of good ones Uh, we played at USC Southern California A couple years back, won an overtime thriller, scored like 103 points on the road, Uh, was a really, really crazy uh, game for us to win, and really important win for our program, and then followed it up the next year with a a win at Arizona State, so uh, back-to-back Pac-12 victories. Uh, The the special one about that was that Arizona State had just beat number one Kansas, the game before us, Um, and Arizona State was ranked 17th, so it was a huge game for us. Uh, We hit our our starting center hit two free throws when we were down one to give us a one point lead. And then uh, Arizona state had like three shots at the rim with under 10 seconds. And we had to like, I don't even know how we won the game. Like they had a couple good looks and it just didn't go in for them. And um, that was a really good moment, a uh, good moment for our team. Um, Penn Ivy league tournament. Uh, we were 14 and zero, which I'll probably talk about in my actual greatest game in a little bit. Um, We were losing to them and we were like the big time favorites to win that year. And we tipped in the ball uh, with like five seconds left when we had been losing the whole game to send it to overtime and then eventually move on to the championship game. And then every Harvard game I feel like we play is like the best game of all time. Um, In my four years there, I think we've beat Harvard three times with under 10 seconds to go. Um, They had a missed box out on a free throw when we were down one that we got and put back with like two seconds left to take a one point lead, um, in a tie game on ESPN, our point guard drove to the left and hit a floater over a six, nine kid to take a two point lead with like four seconds left. And then this year we had our center who hit the game winning free throws at Arizona state, do it the same exact thing to Harvard. Um, so, we, it's every time you see Harvard on the schedule, it's like tune in because Princeton and Harvard are going down to the wire. So, those have been that's my honorable mention list. I tried to get through that quick for you guys. Um, solid list, I like it. <laughs> but I'd be like going to the NCAA tournament has to be on my greatest game list, I think. Um, that was my first year at Princeton, and we were, as I mentioned, we were 14 and 0 in the league. Um, first ever Ivy League tournament prior to that it was just whoever won the league that year would go and get the automatic bid. So of course the year that we're 14 and 0 we don't get the auto bid. We have to play in a, a four team tournament at Penn, who was our first round opponent um, and our biggest rival. So we got through that. We were on a 19 game winning streak. So we were one of the hottest teams in the country heading into the tournament. And the crazy thing about it, Brian and Chris, was that we played our tournament back to back. We played Sunday night, and then we played, sun, uh, I'm sorry, Saturday night and then Sunday afternoon of Selection Sunday. So we win. We cut the nets down. We drive up to um, Nassau Street. We have this great watch party. We're 19-0. We have CBS cameras in our watch party. Our head coach is getting interviewed. Our guys are enjoying this. It's like the best time ever. Um, we find out our seed, we're going to Buffalo, New York. Thank you, tournament committee, for sending us to the cold. Uh, <laughs> and there's <laughs> a someone's huge... gotta go yeah i know i'll go anywhere i said i was like i don't care where we go wherever we go it's good but uh they had a huge blizzard coming into the northeast and we were on a charter flight less than 24 hours after we found out our seed. so normally we would have went out on a tuesday we would have had like a day to do a walkthrough practice pack our bags like Once we got our seed, I was getting phone calls from the NCAA as director of ops. Like, okay, you guys are flying out at this time. Pack your bags. We're leaving now. Like (laughs) we were in Buffalo for like four days because we were there so early. Um, But the whole experience leading up to it was insane. But the game, like I I did a radio show with uh, Sean McIsaac and Chris Gaskin, and they asked me about being in the NCAA tournament, and I downplayed it. And I was like, when you're in the game, like, it's just another basketball game. And then I realized how Coach Gaskin reacted to it. I was like, what an arrogant answer that was. (laughs) I'm in the NCAA tournament, and I'm saying it's just another game. But, like, it in that moment, it truly felt like we were just playing basketball. You know, the arena's bigger. they got nice fancy decals on the court. But in the game, um, it, it felt like for most of the game that it was just a normal game. But uh, we played Notre Dame. I think we were fifth in the country in turnover rate, and they were, like, second. So it was, like, going to be this war of great offense and efficient play. I believe, like, we were probably – I think it was, like, 17 to 15. We were leading, like, midway through the first half. So it was a really good game. Uh, We got cold, and they went on a run. I think that season – Chris and Brian, we were making like 42% of our points were coming from the three point line. So we were making a ton of threes and taking a ton of them. And that game we were cold I think in the first half. We were like five of 17 or five of 18 from three, which was really hurting our game. Um, But then I think we got down 11. That's the biggest we got down. And then there was this moment that I'll, I'll never forget. And it, it could have been an even better moment, but with like nine minutes to go, our our best shooter was from mishawaka indiana and he was like six miles from notre dame so just imagine being a kid grew up loving notre dame you're playing notre dame in the NCAA tournament wasn't having his best game maybe feeling the pressure of playing that hometown team and he goes to the scores table and i'm sitting on the first seat on the bench and i look at him he just looks he just doesn't look right he's a high energy like smile happy kid And he's about to check in. They're shooting a free throw. And I look down at him. I go, I go, yo, just smile. And he looks at me and he smiles and he goes into the game. And I have the Mac commissioner and another tournament rep rep sitting next to me. And they both kind of look at me and like kind of raise their eyebrows. And they're like, the Princeton coach is like, he's telling them to smile. Like that's his advice, you know. But that's what I felt like the kid needed in that moment. And I kid you not, he goes into the game. We're trailing fifty to forty-one. Um, gets an open look directly across from me on the opposite wing. Gets an open look, pulls up, drills the three. Gets an n-one. Is the crowd goes nuts. He's sitting on the ground and he looks over right at me. Goes like this, puts his pointer fingers into his cheek and does a big smile on the bench. And I was like, "We're gonna win." I felt like I felt like in that moment, like he had a moment. He was gonna start drilling shots. Um, And the guys from the Mac, like they kind of looked at me and they're like, oh man, like, okay, that was pretty cool. But um, we, I think we cut the lead down to one with like five minutes to go. And that's the first time that I was like, we're in the tournament because-
1: 55-54 on a Stephen Cook made three-pointer with 3.22 to go.
2: There you go. So I was a little late. I was a little late, but (laughs) with, uh, oh, you know what it was, Chris? We, we missed a three to tie it with five to go. And you could feel the whole crowd gasp because they thought we were going to tie it. And everyone was rooting for the Tigers at that point. We had our, we had our, our uh, alumni. 500,
1: 533. Uh, Will Gladson misses the three. Hey, you got the
2: play-by-play. Oh, look yeah, at Yeah, I got the play. This is what <laughs>
1: good when you're talking about a Division One game. You get the play-by-play. We can go through the whole thing.
2: Yeah. So we missed that three to tie it, and I f- I remember feeling like the energy in the building because now we were the first game of the tournament. We were Thursday, twelve fifteen tip. So everyone in the country, I forget the streaming number, but we had like tw- like two hundred million people were watching that game, hmm. and. Bucknell and West Virginia were the game after us. So now their fans are in the stands ready for their game. And they're like, the heck with Notre Dame, like we're pulling for the upset. Like we want the Cinderella. So everyone's rooting for us at this point. And I remember when we got within one, that energy that I felt was like I could, the hair on the back of my neck was standing up. It was so loud. Like the ground was shaking a little bit, Um, but we just, we never quite got the lead. We never got the lead in that game. I feel like if we had gotten the lead, that energy that I felt might have propelled us forward. Um, we we got within one, we had tied it, I think one or two times, maybe. Um, but then we had a shot. Uh, Matt Farrell, a Jersey kid was on the line shooting one and one, I think. Well, you have the play-by-play up, so you could probably tell me better, but I think it was a one or a two-point game and he misses it. And we get the rebound with like 10 seconds left. Our point guard comes down the floor, turns and and passes it to our three-point shooter from Indiana. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, like this is March Madness. Kids from six miles down the road is the best shooter on our team. He gets a clean look and it just doesn't go in. And I've watched that shot like 50 times since then. And every time I'm like, that's going in. Like it looks like it's going in. (laughs) And it's a guy's, I, you know, newsflash, it never goes in. It, never, yeah, it.
1: still, it still yeah. rims out.
2: Man. <laughs> it still rims out. And then I, the guy from, I don't know his name. I, I'm sorry if you're listening, hopefully you're listening. Maybe you are. Um, the guy who was sitting next to the Mac commissioner comes up to me after the game. And he says, if that kid made that shot, I was gonna make you famous and go tell a news reporter that you told him to smile. And wow. cool.
1: oh, that was your opportunity. That was, that was your break. That, yeah, that was, was a- my shot.
2: That was my shot. <laughs> but it was uh, it was a great experience. Um, the one thing I regret is that I didn't really know what I was doing. Like I was there, and it was like the best experience of my life, and I didn't know how hard it was to get there. You know. And what like a privilege it was to be in the NCAA tournament, and now three years since then we've been fighting to get back. We've been a couple shots away, a couple bounces away, um, but I can't wait to go back, and we will go back, and I can't wait to really sit back and be like, "This is cool," you know. In my first year at Princeton, I was like, "This has to be perfect. That's got to be perfect." I, you know, I wasn't an experienced ops guy at that point, so. I'm really looking forward to getting back there. We've got some good players on our team. I think we can be there in the next year or so, um, but that's my greatest game. So, Well, I, wanna, <laughs> I know the feeling you had, but on the
1: opposite side, when I was at the University of Kentucky, we were playing in Cleveland in the snow and the cold in the NCAA tournament. We were the five seed. St. Bonaventure's was the 12 seed. And they were hanging with us the whole game. You know, it's Kentucky. You're not supposed to lose to St. Bonaventure in the NCAA tournament. Yep. And the crowd, Syracuse was playing after us. I'm not sure who they were playing, but Syracuse was the four seed. I forget who they were playing. And, right, those fans start to come into the arena, and they all start rooting against the big team, nope. especially nope. someone like Kentucky. They're not, you know what I mean? Because they, they don't want to see you. They no, don't want right. to play they, you. Kentucky's <laughs> won enough damn games, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and just the energy and we had to actually have Tayshaun Prince had to hit a shot to put it into overtime Oh wow! for us to then go ahead and beat St. Bonaventure that, I mean, they had us down, but that energy in the building is so unique to an NCAA tournament there. I mean, it is, I've been to all kinds of sporting events all over this country and that NCAA tournament energy is like no other.
2: It's unreal. And I, I remember, um, standing on the court during the national anthem of that game and just, you know, looking at the flag, having my hand over my heart. And just two years prior, I had attended an NCAA first round game in Orlando with my mother and my aunt. And I think we, we sat in the third to last row all the way up. And I needed like binoculars to see the floor. (laughs) And I was just like, this is surreal, man. Like I'm, I'm coaching in this game right now. And that like, I'll never forget that moment. The, the American flag, the, the national anthem, being on the floor, first game of the tournament, like it was, it was so crazy. And then, I don't know how many people experienced this, but we lost that game. And the NCAA runs such a tight ship. I watched the late games from a bar in Princeton. That's how quickly we get home. So
1: it <laughs> should wow. be out of there. <laughs> it's, it's
2: insane, guys. Like we we lost the twelve o'clock game. So that game's over at like two. We get back to our hotel. I think we were on a charter flight. Maybe at like six o'clock and i i kid you not i was watching the night games like there's like a nine o'clock start yeah, game
1: 9 30 that west
2: coast yes yeah. and it was being played in the arena that we were just at and i'm like this is like bizarro <laughs> world it's, it's crazy that's incredible yeah I,
0: and chris I'm, I'm struck now again i'm not going to give away any of the content of your podcast because again pursuit podcast got to check it out but I know that you've got a background in sports psychology um, again fans can hear more about that on your podcast but I'm struck by what you just said about three minutes ago that it's going to be different when you get back to the NCAA tournament it sounded like you know your first year you just you just for there's no judgment it's just you weren't very present it was just like oh, I gotta have everything here got it you know so what will be different for you as, as a coach and director of operations when you get back to the NCAA tournament
2: Um, I think anything that you do, I think I've learned you get better at it in time. So the things that maybe took me two hours to do my first year, I'd like to think I'm doing them in half the time now. Um, So I I feel like I would have a little bit more free time. Um, The things that I probably thought really mattered back then don't really matter anymore. Um, So I think I don't have a specific for you on that, that I can give as an example, but I would just say anyone who's listening, like really challenge yourself to think about what you think matters. Um, Because there's a lot of things that probably like the placement of the patch, by the way, like I put those patches on our uniform. They're a stick on for anyone who's listening, who thinks they're sewed on. I do not not have that talent, but (laughs) I can't tell you how long I was like, okay, the NCAA is slanted, like, is it perfect? And it just, no, just put the patch on it's in the right spot. It's it's close enough. Um, so I think those things, I would probably have a little bit more time to sit back and be like, this is enjoyable. I'm with this team. Like, let me bond with our guys. Like though, that would be what I would really take some time for. I think it's just
1: in uh, just enjoying the moment, whatever they are. I think, uh, you know, I talked about this on our last podcast with obviously everything we've gone through in this world in the last six months, you know, not taking those moments for granted. And yeah, like you said, you were so, you know, discombobulated with everything going on your first year there that maybe you didn't sit back and enjoy the moment. Um, and I'm always struck by Brian. This is going to be, we had our, we had our friend Barry Sanderson on the podcast a couple, uh, couple episodes ago. And Brian, I don't know if you remember this. I always remember this is uh, Barry had a picture up in his office always of him and his dad, sitting on a bench, sitting on the bench before a game, and his dad just had his arm around him. Mm -hmm. And you could tell, like, Barry was young in the picture. And I don't know, I think maybe part of the reason Barry has it up there is because he realized that, like, what a great moment that was now later in life. Probably at the time, you know, he's sitting there and his dad's got his arm around him. He's probably like, what the, you know, what is this about? But his dad was enjoying the moment, coaching with his son, you know, not worried about, you know, for doing the pregame warmups right. But just, you know, I'm getting to coach with my son, and that's a really neat opportunity.
2: That's awesome, <laughs> man. I mean, uh, I'm actually at my parents' house right now. I played a round of golf with my dad today. So I'm back home uh, in Bergen County doing this podcast, and I'm in my dad's, like, man cave right now. And he grew up uh, a high school football coach. And, I, Chris, I, there's a picture where my my dad's at midfield getting interviewed by a reporter, and I'm standing there probably, like, Three years old, maybe four years old, holding my dad's hand, just like looking up and listening to what he's doing. And that's so true. Like what you just said is so relative to me. And what's really interesting is like it's a little full circle now at this point. Like when I was a kid, I used to sit at the top of my steps and listen to my dad do a phone interview from a news reporter and just listen and be like okay what's he saying why is he saying that how's he responding to that what's his tone and like i kid you not i don't know if this is true but i wouldn't be surprised if my dad's at the top of the steps right now listening to this interview because now he's proud of kind of what i'm doing um and that's just the full circle and the appreciating the moment kind of thing
0: Uh, yeah that that's a that's a mic drop there (laughs) it's just it's just for me like i've got two directions i want to go one is what else is there, right? It's just, it's, it's these moments right here. It's us three talking into this technology to be able to connect on this podcast that some people will listen to. Some people won't, some people like it. Some people won't even have listened this far in the, into an episode, but just enjoying getting to, I've never met you, Chris, get to be able to meet you electronically, virtually ah. and just do something and talk about basketball. And, and it's just, it's what is, it's what's happening. I just think it's, it's just incredible. incredible
2: this is this is the good stuff guys brian and chris like you guys hit me up i followed your account because uh ronnie sent me the link and i was like oh i didn't know they were doing a podcast and ronnie's on it and i clicked follow and i don't know which one of you said it and you said you want to be
1: it was (laughs) me i saw you followed it i was like you want to be on
2: (laughs) and i said sure right away like i will accept any opportunity to number one talk with people who are passionate about anything. I don't care what it is. I'll talk to anyone who's passionate about anything. Uh, Number two, always love a good Bergen County guy. So when coach de Blasio was involved, that was the pull. (laughs) Um, And three, like I I love talking hoops and I love talking in to other people who have a passion project. And that's what you guys have right now. So like, how can I not support that? Um, And you know, I have aspirations to climb the ladder a little bit, and who knows how many of these I'll get to do and whether I'll get to pick out my own schedule or or what will happen. So, when the opportunity presents itself, like take it, learn from it, enjoy it. And uh, that's just kind of been my approach.
1: Brian, quick trivia question for you. Oh, no. Uh, oh, Coach Mongelia. This
2: was going so well, but go ahead. Coach, Coach
1: Mongelia doesn't even know the answer this. Coach Mongelia is in Dumont, New Jersey. Dumont, New Jersey is the current home of what family member of the De Blasio's?
2: Wow, I don't know this one.
1: Ooh,
0: I, I don't. What de Blasio
1: I, family member currently resides in Dumont, New Jersey. Dumont,
0: I've never heard you talk about Dumont. Oh I have God. no idea.
1: Cara De Blasio. Wow. Okay. okay. I no idea. Okay. And her, actually, Cara Gagliano, and her husband Mike. <laughs> big, big man. I tell you what,
0: uh, when we have when we start our our cooking podcast, we're going to have Mike on as our first guest. <laughs> so. Whoa, boy, boy, boy! But
1: Coach, I, we like to end on this fun question. I like to stump Brian on trivia all the time. That's that's just a little personal <laughs> it's thing. Not but, that uh, hard. It's not
0: that
1: hard. <laughs> <laughs> Um if I asked the, one of the kids that played for you on the Riverdale middle school team, all those years ago, it's not that many years ago, but it probably seems like it. And I ask uh, one of the guys at Princeton that's played for you the last couple of years, what would be this one thing they say, coach Mongelia always says in practice or during games, what's that thing you hear yourself saying all the time?
2: Oh man. Uh, let's see. That is a very difficult question. I don't know that I talk enough for the guys at Princeton to think that I have like a go-to phrase. I think I find, I find my spots to, to plug and support. Um, at Riverdale, for sure. I yelled run. That was like <laughs> that we, we played high tempo. We tried to get the ball up the court in four seconds and get a layup with the, without the ball hitting the floor. So I, I guarantee you, um, we might've been the best condition team in the County and, <laughs> the best passing team when I play, when I coached so that I, I know I said run, but man, I would love to have those guys come on and, and kind of have like the the light bulb go off for me. Like, Oh yeah, I do say that a lot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think You know what? Brian challenged me a few episodes ago to go back and, and come up, and list all the people's answers. But one of my favorites that I, I don't remember is one of my favorites. I don't remember who it was, but he said his wife told him that he says this thing all the time. He didn't even realize that it had to be his wife.
2: <laughs> that was like you say this all the time <laughs> that's so funny i think i think if you asked our coaching staff right now at princeton what i say in staff meetings <laughs> i will say uh we got to work on layups that's i'm like a <laughs> with layups. and mitch has gotten to the point where he'll be like what else do we need to do and he'll look at me and be like i know we have to work on layups <laughs> That's for sure. Mine on the Perfect. coaching staff.
0: Uh, that takes me back to those days and sitting and watching film as a GA and, and coach Odom looking and saying to me like, Brian, why don't you say more and you were watching film? And I'm thinking like, I don't know what we're really looking at. Like this, uh, <laughs> this stuff, what y'all are talking about is, I mean, I'm learning, but like, Oh my God, like, you know, but uh, anyway, yeah, it's, it's just a, uh, it's, it's a good fun memory. So but uh Wow, Chris, um, again, the, the podcast is the Pursuit Podcast. Um, highly recommended at Chris Mangilia on Twitter, Princeton at Princeton MBB on Twitter. That's a great follow. Whoever y'all's graphics people are. About, oh, yeah, are shout out to the graphics
2: people. Shout out. Oh, Those gosh. are student managers. If anybody needs uh, to hire anyone in graphic design, uh, just hit me up, Brendan Bowling, Michaela Tyrell, they have both graduated, looking for full time jobs. Uh, two of the best in the business, and uh, we're fortunate to have them. But uh, yeah, great social media for us. Yeah,
1: they can so- have a full time job for free, working for the Greatest Games Podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah, okay. well, Brendan works for the uh, Pursuit Podcast, so he's already- <laughs>
0: <laughs> well we we'll might might be able to start a bidding war who knows. But uh, <laughs> and, and before we get off the air, Chris, who won at golf? That's, that was the other question that I,
2: I wanted to find out oh, today. Uh-oh. That, Uh-oh. So I'm, my Uh-oh. dad's going to listen to this podcast because he supports everything I do. Um, I, I didn't want to let him know that he lost in golf. Cause I kept score today. Um, I just realized it's more about being out on the course with him and not really, you know, taunting him that I was beating him, but <laughs> I shot a 42 on the, on the back nine today, which is the best I've ever shot. Um, I am not a good golfer. This is a shorter course. It's not like a, you know, a big-time PGA course. Uh, Where would you course, play? Uh, it's called Cruise Farm in Farmingdale, New Jersey. It's kind of oh, okay. down by the beach area a little bit. Yeah, But, uh, yeah, I think I got him by about two strokes, but we won't tell him that. So I, I had a
1: 98 today. I was terrible. 98 today, 92 the other day. So,
0: wow. Need to start working in public education up there. And not play a <laughs> golf. We'll give
1: this away. This podcast is going out for a couple weeks, but today is Yom Kippur, the oh, uh, Jewish Day of Atonement. In New go. Jersey, we get that yeah. holiday off here. There so, you go. all right, <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds good.
0: Well, we won't tell Coach Mongelia that uh, that that you that you cut him. The real
2: morning. Coach Mongelia. <laughs> original, the original.
0: <laughs> Well, Chris, again, uh, this has been this has been super, and can't thank you enough for, for giving up your time to come on the Greatest Games. Just really, really appreciate you doing this with us.
2: Brian, Chris, this is it's been a lot of fun. I love what you guys are doing. Uh, I've only listened to two of your episodes so far, but I'm subscribed. I've rated, and I will uh, I'll continue to enjoy these for sure. Well, we appreciate the rate. We appreciate the review. That does help us out, as we mentioned in the uh, the, the opener
0: before the show started. But let's go ahead and. Bump. Button this one up. And uh, for my co-host, Chris Blasio, I'm Brian Rosefield. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Games.